0: This week we'll talk about industrial data challenges and we have a special guest today, Rozona. Rozona is a trained mathematician who works in the data space in, for the last six years and with last three working in industrial data. She is currently a machine learning engineer with technical leadership role around synthetic tabular data in an AI innovation team and she's particularly intrigued by industrial R&D problems. Welcome to our one today, Rozona.
1: Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> I'm glad that it that finally worked out.
0: We've been trying to yeah. for, a while. for a year or maybe more. It was always um, fun. March. It was with a year. You. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, so every time we spoke previously, you always had an opinion about many interesting topics. So today we finally have a chance to put this on the record and uh, have a podcast interview about that. The questions for today's interview are prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks a lot, Johanna, for your help. And yeah. Before we go into our main topic of industrial data challenges, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far?
1: I mean, you you gave sort of a, the broad strokes, right? Mm-hmm. I was originally a Ph.D. mathematician. This is actually what brought me to Germany was an academic career. I did several postdocs first in Hamburg and You reach a point where either it's going to work or it's not relative to your constraints in your life. And so I decided, okay, industry it is. And then that's been about six years. Uh, I've tried many roles. I sometimes tell people looking at my career path looks kind of like I'm a data Roomba. Like, let's try this. I go with this direction. I hit a block. I spin around. Roomba, you know those vacuum machines that you you don't, a robot, a robot that cleans your house, except I'm, you know, cause that makes me sound like I'm a data cleaner by trade, which I'm not, but I mean, just sort of like, there was intention, which is more than I could say for a robot, I guess, but, uh, or this particular robot, but I explored a lot of things. And each time I pivoted someone uh, on LinkedIn was saying, you know, have a goal and then, you know, you have to keep pivoting and yeah, sure. But you should also adjust the goal as you go, you know, before you get in an industry, you don't really know what it means to be an in industry. So anyway, mixture of things, financial data, CRM data, and then industrial data about three years ago, a contract position for about nine months to a year, and then where I am now permanently. And I think industrial data, this is something that's really frustrating with me and why I wanted to do this topic is I feel like we're ignored by a lot of tools and a lot of demos. And you get kind of tired of being that person in the, in the audience being like, but what about our use case? <laughs> so I'm here to say, We have all of these data. It's cool. We have great challenges. Uh, If you're looking for a new area or, you know, in the future, what might you do in industry? This is a great place that I think is underrepresented maybe in the space of, of events. Also, caveat, I have to say, I'm here as a private person. So none of my opinions are those of my employer. I will do my very best not to use profanity, but I make no promises.
0: What did you actually research as a mathematician?
1: This is the shortest answer.
0: <laughs> For those who do not see the video, because we will also oh, release yes. it as audio only. So what is that?
1: I actually don't know. I, I was thinking it was a Möbius band. see the video band. also,
0: maybe, maybe. <laughs> people wonder that. <laughs> is it like a Möbius uh, stripe? Uh,
1: so these are 3D printed topological spaces. This is an inverted sphere. Mm-hmm. And then I think this might be a Möbius band. It might not.
0: It's a Möbius type, right?
1: Yeah, I think so, but actually I think it's like equivalent, but it's not actually the same. Like geometrically it's different, but topologically it is. So that's the long answer to the short answer of I was an algebraic topologist. I was way off in like the far. Have you seen the XKCD where he's got like applied fields and he's got, you know, I don't know, like sociologists, scientists, but blah 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 blah, engineers, and then way over here is mathematicians. <laughs> if you did the same graph and then, but inside of mathematics, I feel like topology, especially algebraic topology, especially my like sub 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 discipline, is way is similarly like way off the deep end. Like, hey guys, we're over here. Mm-hmm. So the study of spaces and mm-hmm. some people call it rubber sheet geometry, it was fun. Inver- I liked it.
0: Inverting spheres.
1: Inverting spheres. There you go. There is actually applied algebraic topology, but that's not what I did. But if you're excited mm-hmm. about, Hey, this sounds cool. What can I do? Maybe go that way. I could name mm-hmm. my first advisor was Rob Greist, who I then changed to mm-hmm. more pure, pure discipline. But he's a lot of cool presentations.
0: Mm-hmm. So what of this was, you had a lot of, you knew, still know a lot of mathematics. What of this mathematics was actually useful for your industrial career?
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <I> should... <laughs> this is not fair because it's totally not a question. It's it's also a little mean, I feel, I feel okay, like. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It just reminds me, I had this interview with a group of, I'm not going to name, obviously, the employer, but a group of p- applied mathematicians that I came into this interview and they're like, how did you end up in IT? I'm like, okay, hostile environment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, because I'm curious, like, probably it was very useful when you were picking up some basics of machine learning, but, Maybe not all of that, right?
1: Yeah, but I think this is also a deeper question of how is mathematics mm-hmm. useful and what is mathematics. And <laughs> okay. I think most, no, I'm, de- I'm, I'm dead serious. Give me a like, I'll stick it to address this. I think most of what we learned in school of mathematics isn't mathematics. And what really is mathematics to me is thinking logically. Mm-hmm. And what I bring, so really the, but another question that I like better is what do you bring as, as a pure mathematician into this space? And I think it's really in math, especially in pure math and a really niche discipline where people are not willing to repeat themselves. You have one chance to learn something from someone, right? You're at a conference. There's that fancy guy over there and you're like, oh my God, he wrote this paper or she wrote that paper. I need to talk to them. And you have maybe 40 minutes of their time if you're lucky, probably 20, maybe 10, right? And you have to optimize like the thing I want to know and what questions to ask and like, have I answered these questions? And these are really valuable skills. I think just going in and understanding what questions to ask, how do you learn enough about something to sort of keep a model of it in your head? And then here's the pure math part. Say, how is this going to break? Because this is the difference between a proof and a simulation. Like when you try to prove things, you're actually not trying to prove something. I'm not out there being like, here's my argument for why you should vote this way. I'm out there trying to first see why will this fail and then fill those holes. And that's incredibly valuable. And I think something, uh, the biggest thing I bring as a pure mm-hmm. mathematician is this proof
0: mm-hmm. viewpoint. Okay. For how long did you actually do this? Academics. I mean, mathematics, yeah.
1: Oh, haha. You mean from the point I decided to, be, to study pure mathematics? That was like two years of undergrad plus seven years of master's plus PhD plus six years of postdoc.
0: Okay, that's a lot of mathematics.
1: It's a lot. It's a full career. I think Uh this is also something that makes it really difficult jumping to the end of the talk to what's it like being, you know, what's this transition like? I think it's very, people don't know how to where to put you, right? Because you're lopsided, right? You have this whole career in a completely separate space. So you're a senior. You're obviously senior. I mean, look at your age. Look at how long you've been working. But you aren't senior in a business sense, right? There's a lot of things you don't know, right? You come in and maybe you don't know SQL or whatever. You can learn it, obviously, but you're this weird lopsided human that people have to figure out, how do I deal with this development of this person?
0: Yeah, if you can invert this fear, then SQL is like, you <laughs> it's right. It's very easy to. <laughs> <pick>. <laughs> okay. So we actually here wanted to talk about industrial data. So what is industrial data? What is it?
1: So let me first make a caveat that. I'm really, I really like this topic. I've been working on this topic, but I think there are obviously people who are who are super experts on this. So before I offend anybody, industrial data is not a monolith. And, I, and this is, I think it's a great question. What is it? And it's very broad. So let me say the simplest answer is an a productive industry generates the data. And it's data that does pretty much
0: everything, right? G-
1: but not really, right? CRM data. I fight that CRM data does not fall under this. HR data does not fall under this. Obviously, we have this data, but...
0: Why it does not fall into? There is a process that generates data. Like, so somebody is hired, then, okay, there's a new record.
1: Sure, but it's not like I have a thing that I'm trying to make. So, I mean, like, in the industries like the chemical industry mm-hmm. or the semiconductor industry cool. or our friends in the automobile industry like people mm-hmm. who have a thing that they sell at the end of the day like that they produce thing, a,
0: process or something a like physical that, right? thing that they not produce necessarily like a program
1: not a program not a person not mm-hmm. like you know recommendations on a website like a, mm-hmm. an actual physical thing mm-hmm.
0: so it's um like if there is a i don't know i want to create Paint, blue paint, right? There is a process for creating the paint. And there is some data produced by this process. Yes. And when you work with this data, this is industrial data, right?
1: Right. And then within industrial data, I just want to like R&D data, which is small, which is why there's this like, oh, small R&D data, because that's where I've historically been sitting. I mean, but I've been sort of half-half. I've also done some of the, what I would call the productive. So there's sort of industrial R&D where experiments can be very expensive. Which is why it's small data because it's expensive. And then you generate a process, you develop a process for a new product. And then there's like a, a pseudo plant where you do this, you run the process with a lot of QC, a lot of stopping it, like adjusting things, like your QC,
0: QC
1: quality control, where you mm-hmm. stop it. Good call. I'm usually better about abbreviations. Mm-hmm. Right. So you stop it and you adjust it and you're developing the process of making the thing, right? Step one, here's the formulation for the thing. Step two, how do we actually do it? And what information do we need to record to make sure that it's produced at a good quality? And then step three is we've developed that process. We've got it live. It's running. And then there's live quality controls that you have to do. Like this machine has a part that welds and it needs to be replaced regularly other because it wears out. How often does it need to be replaced? So like sort of productive maintenance or planned maintenance kind of tasks happen there. So I would say there's sort of broadly three large areas. And then within those, there's all sorts of directions people can go. There's agricultural stuff where data is expensive because it just takes so long. You have to wait until corn grows. Or toxicology, you have to kill a rat. (laughs) It's kind of expensive to kill animals to measure the toxicology. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, even not just R&D, but all over, there's a lot of directions.
0: So I just want to summarize. So there are three categories of industrial data. First are R&D experiments. Mm -hmm. These experiments are expensive, so we have very little data there. Then there is a kind of production data that's the other side of the spectrum. And then the, the thing in between, I kind of missed it. What was that?
1: It's like you make a sort of, I mean, I haven't worked with this myself. I just know it exists. I'm, this is how people have explained it to me. I've worked on the two ex- extremes. Mm. In the middle is sort of like a like a mock-up of a running process. You mm. In step one of your R&D, you've started developing this process. Step two is maybe you've built the sketch of a plant. The plant's like there, but you need to... kind
0: of proof of concept.
1: Yeah, like a POC, like a tiny, instead of a whole giant warehouse, you've built a room running this process and you're trying mm-hmm. to like fine-tune how this should work. Mm-hmm.
0: So if we talk uh, if we take this example of blue paint then the expensive experiment part would be like trying different chemical combining different chemicals to see like the shade of blue is the right one right then mock up could be like how can we combine it in a more automatic way right instead of him just a person
1: Exactly right how do we automate this process how do we yeah. get the right volume how do we make mm-hmm. sure that it's always this color blue mm-hmm. because i mean volume can affect the color of paint also paint is like I mean, color is a hard problem, as mm-hmm. we all know, Having pa- I've painted a few apartments.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I decided to use this example, because I think maybe like five or six years ago, I interviewed with a company. It was a chemical company in a very small, like uh, German village. And that was the only company in that village. And it was like a huge company, huge chemical mm-hmm. company. And yeah, they were doing paints.
1: It's a good example. There's a lot of cool stuff with paints. There's actually another reason why it's expensive is one of the standard tests you do with paints is that you, it's called like the Florida test. And it's supposed to say, I mean, I think originally it was like, we leave it out in Florida for 30 years, but obviously that's way too long for R&D length. So you, you paint some paint and you send it to Florida and you let it sit there for, I don't know how long, but this is one of those, I mean, paint is a big application.
0: That's also an expensive experiment, right? If you live in Germany, send in something. Imagine, yeah, you have to ship it to Florida. (laughs) So Spain will not work, right? It has to be Florida. No.
1: There's something special. You can look it up. I encourage people in the audience to look up the Florida paint test or whatever. And there's like you can see pictures of these huge fields. And I explained to you like there's special subtract tropical environment, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I just know it exists, and I was shocked. And you know. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So we already discussed that the industrial data is different from the usual internet companies' data. So the main difference is that there is a physical process that creates a physical thing most of the time in industrial data. Like, I don't know, there is an assembly line that creates a car, right? While in usual internet companies' data, there is like person comes, clicks, and then there is accommodation.
1: Yeah, and I think there's also, it's hard to adjust what data you get. Uh-huh. What's productive? There's another thing that I think there's a lot of things that seem to surprise people. And one of them is you can have tons of data. So on the productive end, processes are not designed with data in mind necessarily, yeah. which I think is a difference with like CRM, you run experiments, mm-hmm. you can say what information do I actually need about my customers, you can adjust what information you're collecting very quickly. And in industry, you can't necessarily, if your plants in another country, you first you need to explain what it is you want them to do. But you know, like, I mean, what sensors are available to you? There's also issues of like, you might have a, a workflow where you've got a consistent process, but you have machines from four different manufacturers and each machine has different sensors in different positions. How much do you trust your model that you're building with these? And then first, of course, you have to do cleaning and you have to like sort of center, you know, pull this data together so that it it makes sense as a whole.
0: Can you maybe give an example? I don't know to what extent you can be a made up example, like of a process of creating something physical and then what kind of things we can observe and record and use for.
1: Sure. I'm going to make one up. So this is a made-up example. (laughs) I was thinking about this, like, how do I make something up? Because obviously I should not talk about work. So what's something that we all know and understand? I went with packing peanuts, because this, for me, illustrates several problems all at once. So if I have no idea how you make packing peanuts, by the way. I don't even know. Yeah.
0: Packing peanuts? I mean, you have peanuts and then you want to pack them. Oh, no, no,
1: I'm sorry. I thought this was a standard phrase. You know, when you open a box that's been shipped to you, There's various ways to pack things. One of them is mm-hmm. with uh, those big cushions of air. Mm-hmm. And one of them, there's these little styrofoam things.
0: Uh-huh, so it's not actual peanuts.
1: They look sort of vaguely like a peanut. That's what we uh-huh. call them, as
0: packing peanuts. Uh, I got overly excited. I thought we would talk Sorry. about peanuts. No. <laughs> <Okay>. That would... <laughs> well, <the> packing <laughs> peanuts is also a process that is... Uh, <laughs> you know, you need to add salt or roast them or whatever.
1: Mm. Okay, so this is a production... Uh-huh. process so so i have no idea how you make pack, packing peanuts i'm just going to make up a process because mm-hmm. right okay packing peanuts i'm going to assume you extrude them or something so there's something is mixing something some kind of polymer and then there's an ex- extruder that spits it out
0: there's an extruder for those like imagine
1: tools. you're a toothpaste well there's a terrible uh-huh, so you one, sc-
0: right? yeah instead of toothpaste you have like this material yeah
1: right and then maybe something that cuts it off i don't know maybe Mm. there's a mold how i mean Mm. maybe it's a molding process so whoever somebody is going to come see this and with a transcript and tell us you know in in next week (laughs) how you make packing peanuts but whatever we're going to pretend this is how you make packing peanuts all right it gets extruded. Maybe it gets dried. Um, you obviously might collect them together at some point, right? Into a big batch of packing peanuts. And then now you have, you ship those packing peanuts off. But obviously you need some kind of, you need to measure the quality of your packing peanuts. I don't know what's important. What's important about packing peanuts? That they actually take up space, I guess. That they're not flattened.
0: Yeah. And then they're like, like when you squish yeah. Yeah.
1: That they crumble. That they're not wet, I guess. That would be good. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's just say... I want to make sure that they are not flattened. Maybe flattening is a big problem. Like you've extrude them and they dry wrong. I don't know. How can I measure this? So at this point, okay, you know, I've got some sensors. I can put there's. I think, I feel like visual sensors are always expensive and kind of, but I don't know if it's true, but my impression from what kind of data is available is that other kinds of sensors are cheaper and easier to deal with. Like you might have weight, I guess, you know, like it's rolling along the a belt and there's a weight sensor underneath it and it says suddenly there was a drop in weight and like okay what happened did a bunch of peanuts not actually get extruded
0: even before that maybe this thing that uh, you know extrudes them like you can measure the volume how much each time it's like sure
1: yeah you can yeah there you go you can measure like with each one is the volume consistent am i always extruding i don't know 10 grams or whatever Mm -hmm. liters milliliters (laughs) milliliters i don't want a 10 liter packing peanut Um,
0: (laughs) So you monitor every step of this process and then you add some sensors?
1: You might, but you have to decide, right? Like there's a person designing this process. this is also the thing, the person designing the process is not optimizing for the data collection necessarily. Hmm. I feel like it's generally an afterthought. I have had this told to me by someone who runs a huge process that data is an afterthought, and they're working on it. This is like an industry-wide, oh, yeah, we should really work on this problem. It's changing. But in general, historically, when you design a workflow, what you're optimizing for is you don't want the people doing the things to cross paths too many times, right? Otherwise, they're going to slow things down by running into each other. So you design your shop floor full of machines and processes to minimize people running into each other. But that can make data collection and identification and tracking difficult. Why would you track one peanut? You wouldn't track one peanut, right? I wouldn't care about one peanut. I care about maybe like 10 grams of peanuts. But then that's that's sort of tough because at each stage of the process, maybe they get mixed up, right? Maybe you have data at the beginning that says, this peanut was made with 10 milliliters of whatever, gunk. And then later on the process, you have 10 kilos of peanuts, and you can say, I guess, what their weight is. And then, okay, well, how do I know what peanuts were in here? How do I pull this data together so that it makes sense altogether? Um, this sort of coarseness and fineness of data and that you sort of mix things, There's processes that mix them together. Like when you're drying, you can imagine you put them in some big thing and they dry, and then you like have some kind of cycle to squish them around, mish them around, and then yeah. So I think I feel like coarseness and fineness of data is a problem. I mean, how you model the data when you finally want to work with it is a problem or a challenge. Sorry, a challenge. I mean, it's exciting. It's really cool. I mean, there's also processes where, I mean, I was told sawing when you cut things is really messy and it's a really hard problem to solve. How do you model anything with a process that does cutting? Because it, there's so much vibration, like whatever sensors you have are going to have a lot of noise.
0: Yeah, so you have this process then this process produces a lot of data and not necessarily all the data we need. But right. what I now wonder is why do we actually care about this data? Do we want to make sure that the quality is good? Do we want to make sure that nothing breaks? Or
1: So on the productive end, definitely quality. I mean, for quality. the research end, it's like, how do I make the best product? Mm-hmm. And then on the production, like it's gone live, what am I doing? Well, maybe this thing that you're doing gets turned into something else later. I mean, this is often in the productive in- industry the case, right? I wouldn't buy a semiconductor, but I I suppose I could, right? But I buy something that has this chip in it, right? And what you worry about is how do things like, how do my QC parameters, how do my quality control, what does my quality control tell you about the quality control of the downstream product? That's a big challenge. So this is something, why why do you care? But things like, okay, maybe packing peanuts are a terrible example, but I mean, I don't want to ship a box full of flattened packing peanuts because then they don't Mm. do their job and so yeah quality control going out quality control coming in of the product we're using to make our product mm-hmm. also yeah stuff like can i improve processes uh like this example with i have a machine that's doing something and it needs to be changed regularly usually you do this i mean often you do this with just a, a, a rule of thumb but maybe the costs are, are i mean especially now right maybe costs are so so much of a pressure that you really want to optimize this process and change this part one less time a day if, if possible and so you need to keep an eye on is this process producing anomalous pieces right how good is the quality is it within the range i need
0: so basically we use it uh, we use this data for monitoring i guess mm-hmm. at the beginning Definitely. like for example like we have one kilo or one liter of the material from which the peanuts are produced and then we expect don't you know one kilo out right sure or whatever volume maybe and we can monitor it right and then we see okay like something is happening because we still put one kilo in one liter in but then something is happening you know we have less or more or whatever right then there are some charts and we can observe this that's one thing is like monitoring the process making sure that things do not go wrong and if something goes wrong some of the metrics um, i don't know deviate from the usual things you notice that and you Can detect anomaly and then you can do something with this right maybe send a technician to check what's happening right i agree
1: i'm just here nodding for the listeners
0: the other thing is you mentioned like maybe qualities of this thing like when you squash them they need to recover shape right so then how do we actually maybe there is a part of the process that does that and we also record
1: so i think i mean sometimes not every process has We should also talk about tiny data. We should see. (laughs) We should. We should also talk about R and D. But this one's much easier because I think it's understandable, faster. But my impression is there's two kinds of quality controls. Sort of live on the conveyor belt or whatever. Like during the process, you take a picture and you keep going, and you leave the thing in the line.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And there's a second kind where you destroy the product.
0: Uh huh. Okay.
1: Yeah. So that answers your question, which is, how do you tell if this is viscous enough or whatever? You take the thing out and you squash it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You take your, or you'd imagine this giant bin of packing peanuts and you take your shovel and you go in and you examine one shovel full of them and destroy Mm -hmm. that so that you're only impacting a small percentage of what you're actually producing. And then, of course, there's a whole science around how much of a sample Mm -hmm. do I need? How often do I need this sample? Mm -hmm. Statisticians have certainly been working on this for a while.
0: So what I was going to ask is, um, as a data person, what do you do with this data? How do you use it? Like, do you build all these anomaly detection models that we just talked about, or there's more?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can certainly, there's also, there's people who, so adjacent to data science, or maybe in the broader data science family, you can also uh, talk about like hemometrics, people who are computational scientists. I don't know how they would like to describe themselves, where they actually have the scientific background and have models for, you know, based on this measurements, what do I expect about this quality of this product? So certainly each time, I mean, imagine when you have physically have to reach in and look at things and touch them, right? It's expensive. And anything you can automate is great, whether that's... And, and my experience talking to people has been primarily quality control. I mean, I'm sure there's other things, right? Like predictive maintenance and things like anomaly detection. Why do you care about anomaly detection? Or maybe sort of volume of anomalies. If suddenly you go from your process has a 5% failure rate to a 20% failure rate, this is bad, right? But it's not something that you can, it's like a pre-warning, right? It's like your role is to give them a flag that says something's horribly wrong. And then someone has to make the decision about what you do about it. Do you stop the machine? Do you stop the process that also costs money? And those are things I don't, it really depends on the situation, what people need and what you can do.
0: I have no idea how it works in this industry, but in internet, at internet companies where I worked, usually there is a problem, right? So Mm -hmm. something, I don't know, like there's a problem, users complain, or I don't know, want to improve something. Right. And uh, we think, okay, what kind of data we have for that? And if there's data. Good. We just use this data and try to see if we can use this data to solve this problem. If there is no data, we need to collect this data and then eventually hope that it will be enough to solve the problem. Does it look similar in industrial data? Like I don't know. There is a problem that we need to make sure that the percentage of defects is at least oh, less than you know 1%.
1: I was thinking in answer to what you were just saying, I was thinking like a new requirement, right? So like your, your your downstream customer says, actually, we really want to know, we really want to track X, right? We have some kind of, I don't know, sustainability requirements. And then suddenly it's like a new requirement. And then the first thing is, does our data tell us that, right? Can we actually answer your question with our data? And if we can't, what do we need to do? Do we need to add a sensor? Is it one just one sensor? Can we get away with one? Can we, like, add a camera? You know, can we bring in some computer vision guys and gals? Yeah.
0: What kind of requirements? Are, you mentioned sustainability. Like, it means that, I don't know, the process we have for producing these packing peanuts is not too bad for the environment, right? So there is not right. too much emission.
1: I mean so let's pick another industry <laughs> that I'm further away from. And uh, like I imagine you know like I think the airlines and also uh you know the train companies have started saying we're sustainable or whatever. How are they guaranteeing that? Or man I bought something recently that said we're 100% sustainable. Your t-shirt, right? There you go. That's t-shirt. I mean clothing is technically also a manufacturing industry. Huh how do they certify that, right? Like, okay, the person making the shirt is taking fabric and thread and whatever from different customers and putting it all together. And so they have to go to each of them and say, we want this to be sustainable. And then they have to say what that means. And I think this is a developing label where people say sustainable means X, Y, Z. And I don't know what it means. I haven't looked it up. I just threw it out there as a word. Mm -hmm. Like maybe it means it has to be organic. Maybe it means you have to be CO2 neutral. I don't know. So you take these requirements to your, you know, cotton manufacturer, and then they have to go and see, okay, who do we buy our cotton from? Like, what are the pesticides? What are the, you know, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Do we even know that? I mean, I feel like a lot of the problem is we don't have, like, no one thought about this problem at the time they developed the process. And so you have to figure out, can I approximate, you know, can I create an avatar that answers this question given what I have, or do I need to figure out a way to get that information going forward?
0: You have uh, other examples, different examples for like these kind of problems or requirements.
1: Requirements. Let's do toxicology. So a friend of mine did this with his well, not toxicology. What he's doing like brain research, but this is all just like any anything that involves animal trials, pharmacology. Mm-hmm. I have never worked in this field, so this is another one where I'm making things up speculatively. My apologies to the people in drug.
0: Paint, right? So paint is not supposed to be. No, no, toxic. but I mean.
1: Yeah, no, but paint can be toxic, right? I mean, lots of things can be toxic, but like drugs or drug trials, right? Mm
0: -hmm. But it's better if it's not, right?
1: Right. I know in the states, right? We have changing rules on what you what you're allowed to have in various things. Like right now, at some point, it came out BPA is terrible, so suddenly all the
0: plastics—it's
1: a chemical. Chemical. Okay. That's all I know. All I know is that at some (laughs) point we hit this, like, oh no, this is terrible, and so all the chemical companies that made plastics had to suddenly make BPA-free plastics Mm -hmm. for food-safe things. And then this sort of sudden reactive, so that's another example. So, right, toxicology. So I was just thinking, like, laws change, regulation changes, right? The allowable amount of X in Y changes regularly. And so you have to keep on top of regulations what's allowed. And then, okay, can we still keep selling this thing? Can we still keep producing this thing with the current regulation? Can we adjust our processes so that we have no BPA or like only 5% BPA? Or we just don't sell water bottles anymore because we can't avoid this.
0: Okay. So there is a new requirement about a certain uh, I don't know, percentage of certain element, BPA or whatever. And then you think, okay, now how do I measure this? And then maybe there is a sensor that you can add to one of the pieces of equipment that you have. You add the sensor.
1: But this would be actually a good transition into uh, small data. Because at that mm-hmm. point, if there's a law that says, or well, I don't think there was a law about BPA, but whatever. If there's a customer demand or a law that says we cannot have this thing in our product, then you have to go back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to go back into research and say, can we develop an equivalent product with similar enough properties without using the substance.
0: So how do we do this?
1: (laughs) Experiments.
0: (laughs) like real experiments, right? Not AB tests.
1: Real experiments. So that's that's I think that's also what's exciting about industry is that there's like real science. I mean, so I shouldn't <laughs> say it like that, should I?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, data <laughs> science is real science or not? Maybe not so much. You know,
1: sorry, natural <laughs> sciences, right? Like people who have a, you know, have spent many years in a windowless office blowing things up and losing fingers and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Maybe not losing fingers, but
0: hopefully not. Yeah,
1: it's a really different kind of place, and I think people really hyper-specialize into their area, which is great. It's really valuable. It's really cool that people can explain to you, like, like you give they give you a data set, and you're like, man, this is really hard to model this. And they're (laughs) like, yeah, we're not surprised because blah 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 blah. Like the way that you even define a measurement is can be highly subjective, right? Back to the question.
0: The question was, um, yeah, like, how do there is a new requirement which... Ah,
1: experiments. Yes.
0: Yeah, we need to change the process. And I imagine like in an internet company, it could be, for example, I don't know, for five years, GDPR appeared and all of a sudden, all of the processes of collecting data needed to be redesigned, changed. And yeah, for us internet companies, it meant that going there, changing the code and thinking, okay, like the new code we have and do the processes we have now satisfy the new requirements. But it's code, it's all virtual, right? So it's just changes Mm -hmm. in Git or whatever. But in this case, in in industry, so it's actual scientists going there and starting experimenting with, I don't know, different chemicals or like Mm -hmm. other things.
1: Yeah. If you're in a situation, so going back to your blue paint, so let's say we had our blue paint and suddenly it came out that there's something in this particular blue dye that's, I don't know, when it's exposed to... Uh, something, water, it's toxic, I don't know, whatever. Something happens, we have to remove one of the components of this blue dye, all production on it gets stopped, we go back to R&D. So if it's something like that, where it's like you're redeveloping something, that's an interesting place to start, because then you do also have the old data, right? You have the historic data, you have the experiments that got you there, and maybe you can reuse some of that data to help you plan your next experiments.
0: What kind of data is there? Because it's different from the sensors data we discussed so far, right?
1: yeah it's super different yeah
0: what kind of data is there like for example for paint or packing peanuts or whatever
1: yeah why don't i i'll try to give you a spectrum uh oh that's a great example actually is spectra but it depends on what stage of the process we're at honestly my impression is when you're and also so i originally was doing stuff with OK, well, a year ago, I was working with polymers, so I know a little more about polymers. And there's a paper, which I think I added to the document for like linked recommendations on polymer informatics and its challenges. It's a very, really cool field. So if you're doing something with chemicals, <laughs> whether it's polymers or not, you have ingredients. Same for pharma. I mean, I, this is, these are two things, two fields, any field that has chemicals, right? You're also drug development, right? You have the ingredients that you put together. You have the recipe of how you make it. Like if you're baking a cake, right? If I tell you this cake is made out of, I don't know. This works with some recipes, but not all of them, right? Like cake is is actually chemistry. But right? if I tell you it's like five eggs, 100 milliliters of milk, uh, 100 milliliters of flour, I don't know. I've made something terrible, some terrible slurry, right, at this point. Mm -hmm. But if I just tell you the ingredients and you know nothing about baking a cake you're not going to be able to bake a cake, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's effectively two sets of data. And I think one of them is tends to be held secret, which is one of the challenges of industrial data I wanted to come to, which is that there's the data you are allowed to see and there's the data that you are not allowed to see.
0: You as a data person, data you are not right? allowed to see yeah. some data.
1: Yeah, so baking a cake, right? Like, mm-hmm. sure, the ingredients tell you something. They tell you, for instance, if you are celiac, if you're allergic or in, to gluten, You know whether the cake contains gluten. So you can certainly do something with this information. But if you want to study the cake making process and figure out if this cake is going to be tasty or not, I don't think I can tell you from the ingredients if the cake is going to be tasty.
0: But what do you do with with this information? So imagine that there is a table. So I don't know, there are different sorts of ingredients with different. Sure, let's uh, say
1: eggs, flour, milk, whatever.
0: And then amount of eggs. Like for this cake, you use 100 grams of this thing. Like I don't know, sugar. Mm-hmm. For this, you use 200. Yeah. And then, like, you record everything you have it in a database. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with this? Like at the end, uh, maybe you predict if cake is tasty or.
1: So you also measure stuff. So there's several kinds of measurements you can make. This is a beautiful mm-hmm. transition. Thank you for the question. Okay. So there's like material properties, like hardness. Mm-hmm. There's different kinds of hardness, viscosity, which you can also different kinds. There's like surface tension. There's things where you can pull it. Like I imagine I wouldn't do this with a cake. I wouldn't pull my cake. But certainly Uh if I were an industrial cake baker, they exist. Uh (laughs) I probably would pull a cake. I probably would measure how much force it takes to pull my cake apart and then try to like work out backwards. Does that mean my cake is delicious? right cuz you can't just have people sit down and eat cake all day you need like you need approximations mm. to that that tell you something right so there's material properties like i guess a viscosity or like the color moistness i don't know material properties and then there's also like application tests which are i've put this thing into another thing and i've done something to it so i don't have a good example of what would a cake application test be <laughs> Oh, um, maybe honestly, something like you put it in a box and you ship it, and then you take it in for like I don't know, you you drive it around Germany for a month with improper freeze you know, improper conditions, and then you measure if it's moldy. Like I could imagine that'd be like an application test for like it's mm-hmm. more extended, right? It's not a pure property of the cake; it's something you've done to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Everybody's gonna be like, "What are you really talking about, Rosanna?" <laughs> I can give you like, I mean. Yeah, I don't know if I can give you a real example. That's the thing.
0: But let's <laughs> stick to the cake example. I Thank think you. it's, um, yeah, so what we record like in our data set is mm-hmm. the ingredients we use Yes. and uh, like how much of these ingredients we use. I guess then there are some properties of the process that produces mm-hmm. the cakes. And then there are all these properties of the end result of the cake, like what happens if it's stretched, like <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: like this example of like we drive it around Germany and then we measure uh-huh. if it's moldy. Like all right? these things, actually, right? we yeah. Do
0: all these things, and then maybe one of the tests is actually I don't know, eating the cake or trying to cut it, and then see how much uh, Yeah, cutting
1: it's nice. I like that yeah. cutting like the cake. How much things and then you are you there on the knife to the cutting? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, whatever. That's how you do actually test a cake, right? You put the <laughs> knife in to see if it's done.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so then, like I can imagine, like 20, 30 different tests, right? And then you put all this data yes. in a database. Yeah. And what happens next? what do you do with this
1: okay well first of all it's it's there and they do whatever they do with it and i'm Mm -hmm. i'm not a person who works in a lab
0: but as a data scientist what do you do this
1: as a data scientist so at that point the reason that they're coming to you is that they want to optimize something so this is like i guess a slight divergence to if you like mathematical optimization or if you learn mathematical optimization Mm -hmm. there are tons of those problems in industry and Mm -hmm. There's also a fight on, I think, okay, a gentle disagreement on whether mathematical optimization falls under the larger, you know, ML, data science, AI world. Putting those aside, it's really important. I also, I mean, I had an interview somewhere else where it was like a, like a traveling salesman problem. We have logistics, we have, you know, 10 places where we store stuff. We have, you know, how many trucks do we need to get things from A to B in the correct time? You know, we want to minimize that, obviously, for various reasons. And um, and what route should they take? So this kind of like planning, like planning, graph theory, mathematical optimization, these kind of problems come in at this point. Mm-hmm. Coming back to the, your actual question, it's an optimization problem. They want to say they want the best cake,
0: mm-hmm. and they yeah. come to
1: me and they say they're like, "We want the best cake. Tell us. Here's our data. We've done our experiments."
0: Mm-hmm. And best? Do they define what is best or?
1: Yeah. But before that even happens, in an ideal world, let me tell you the ideal, the ideal workflow, which does not always happen, is they first come to you and say, we want to run experiments such that we can then determine the best cake relative Mm -hmm. to these requirements. And if they do that, then you can do a design of experiment.
0: Mm -hmm. So I was thinking of a situation then, for example, when you bake a cheesecake, sometimes there could be cracks Mm -hmm. in the cheesecake after you bake.
1: Right. So best could be like minimizing cracks or there's no cracks, yeah. right? So you got things that you measured. Yeah. So what's like, what do they want to optimize? They want maybe the lowest cost possible relative mm-hmm. to the best taste and mm-hmm. things we can measure, right? The least cracks, mm-hmm. the best color, right? Maybe you want a shiny cake, right? If you got like one of those, I don't know if you watch baking shows, but there's like these baking shows where they make really shiny cakes. And I don't know why, how they're shiny, but they do look really tasty. So maybe you want a shiny cake and then you can measure the shininess. There is a way to measure that using light and reflection and sensors.
0: Okay, so you have all these requirements uh, mm-hmm. and then you have an optimization problem. Yes. Right? So how do you combine your ingredients in such a way or how you optimize your process in such a way that you still satisfy all the requirements and then you maybe maximize some of the things, you minimize some of the other things. So it's like... Um, is it called linear programming, Is simplex method, uh, things like that?
1: Yeah, related.
0: That's what you use for? What, what do you typically use for solving the problems?
1: I'm, I'm going to say we're coming a little too close to things but I probably say, shouldn't talk about.
0: Well, let's <laughs> say for this hypothetical example of a cake, what would you use? Simplex method. What do you use the simplex method?
1: I think honestly, and I think this is probably, I mean, obvious that we have tools that help us. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are companies who specialize in doing Mm -hmm. mathematical optimization and making it super easy, and we might make use of their offerings to make our lives easier. Mm -hmm. Then what are we actually doing? Well, we're setting up the problem, and Mm -hmm. if there's not enough data, there are ways to deal with that. So that's where data science comes in as well. And then you hand all that to a solver.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So there is some industrial solver. There is a company who maybe specializes at optimizing... These kind of processes right and then for you what you need to do is define the problem and then put the data there and then i don't click a button and then watch the solver find the best solution
1: i mean if you only have like 10 data points you can't feed that into a solver so Mm -hmm. there's there's modeling in the middle and that's where data science comes in Mm -hmm. as well
0: i see what kind of modeling is it we're creating new data that's the most interesting stuff i
1: know i know but i'm not officially here to officially talk about (laughs) this i haven't had like a, a deep Deep heart to heart discussion with communications about what I what I'm allowed to say. So I'm
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there are hackathons that are faced to the outside world.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: not a bad place to learn about what kind of modeling one does. And there certainly are, I mean, with tidy data, the answer is not. I mean, this is obvious. This is not secret that mm-hmm. the answer is not going to be a neural net, unless it's something that's been pre-trained and you can do transfer learning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, make good friends with statisticians if you think tiny data is exciting. And I think there's no one answer. And that's what I also found ex- quite exciting. I mean, we have a working group at work to talk about, hey, I have this problem, what do I do with it? And it's not just optimization. There's also, can we do prediction? And sometimes mm-hmm. the smallness of the data is actually, we have like an, uh, an infrared spectrum, like some kind of measurement that's, that's like a time series. So it looks huge, but it's actually small. Mm-hmm. And then like, how do I take this data and figure out things from it. I mean, there's a lot, there's, I came wanting to say there's all these cool challenges and then hopefully I've said that.
0: Oh, I imagine uh, like building a model, a binary classification model that says with these ingredients will, and this process of baking the cake, will it crack at the end or not? And now you have a model.
1: Oh, that's another problem. Yeah. So if you don't want to do optimization, if you don't want to do what's the best formulation for this Mm -hmm. cake, which is what I was working on, (laughs) Mm -hmm. then and what you want is, given these things, what's going to happen, right? Will the cake crack? Completely separate question. I mean, we have those as well, those questions as well. And you can also see how, like, well, I think something I was sort of struggling to explain to someone the other day is that with this kind of work, you don't necessarily have a high volume of in-production models, which was my other, like, back when I hung out in in the ML Ops community, I was... Trying to figure out, you know, can I use this structure for my problems? But if you don't have high-volume things because you only have tiny data or you have a consulting project to do this one thing, you don't need a model that's there and tells you the optimal solution. You have one.
0: Well, since you mentioned MLOps, I'm wondering, industry in internet companies, I know that people use Kubernetes and all this stuff, cloud, for deploying the models. I imagine that this is a pretty different situation in real industry.
1: If you go to the productive side, I would say if, if it should feel to you like everywhere else. So if you're coming from an you know anywhere else in industry, in IT, can we call it mm-hmm. IT in the data space? If you're working in the data space and you're used to how people deploy things, CI/CD, MLops, whatever, and you like working in that space, and you're looking over here and saying, "Hmm, manufacturing, what can I do?" I would say definitely the productive side where you're generating. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Depending on the speed of this conveyor belt, right? And if each of our packing peanuts has at least one. I mean, it's going to have like a time series associated. No. I mean, right. It's giant piles of data, right. At one point I was, I was so excited because I I was using Spark to pivot two terabytes of data. And that no. was like a day of data, right. So there, there is big data and there are these things where people have models and they're right. doing experiments and they're constantly deploying and all that, that it's there. But I would say like the tiny data, is, I should feel obvious that that's not, necessarily the challenge that you're dealing with. You're dealing with things, and often it's like, I mean, I knew someone who was embedding their model into a, a software that was being used for visual inspections. So there's also sort of like deployment and kind of like a local sense as well, like not a, a big...
0: No, I understand. So for the production settings, you probably have all these Kafka's and, uh, you know, streaming data and then Sparks. Uh...
1: Again, I can't tell you what our stack yeah. is, but yeah. It doesn't matter
0: <laughs> what, what I mean is like, there, there are some systems that maybe you will find in other places, like internet yes. companies right. too, yeah. because you want to react to this data reliably, right? So you want to observe uh, this data, you want to make sure like, all the alertings are set and like, all the models work real-time as the process is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And then there is the other side of the spectrum, which is these experiments where maybe you have like 10 data points and then you put them in Excel and then you look at them and then.
1: You don't even just look at them. I think also that's the, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and if you want to, if you, I appreciate your summary and I I like what what you're doing and you're trying to bring us to an end. But I, I mean, I think part of what's really interesting is you have to learn about the data. And I think this is also like if you're a scientist now, and by science I mean a real, if you're if you're a physical scientist, if you're a chemist, you're you're a physicist. You're I don't know what other sciences we have. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> it's a really powerful place to be because then you can learn the machine learning methods and then you have the background, right? You go into it. People don't write everything down, right? Everybody knows whatever it is. When you start making blue paint, the first thing you do is you heat up the container to hundred Celsius. I don't know, whatever, but everybody knows it. So we don't write it down. So if you are a chemist who did this thing, then you know that thing, right? You know, all the context, you know, the baked in knowledge, So it's more than just the Excel file. I think coming to, and I've talked to people about that and their challenges with past projects. And they're like, yeah, we just threw a data scientist at it and got nowhere. It's because they didn't ask the right questions.
0: Mm -hmm. And data scientists had no idea about all this uh, hidden knowledge, right?
1: You have to work really closely with your partners. You can't just be a hermit data scientist. You have to be incredibly engaged with your partners and and Mm -hmm. interested about their processes and ask them.
0: So you cannot just open your CSV file with Pandas and then throw it to XGBoost and then?
1: No, I feel like the process is first you talk to them and you ask them what Uh the problem is and that you understand it. And then they explain the process to you and what everything means. And then you go digest it and you do your EDA and you come back and you're like, these things are both called shininess. And like shininess one, shininess two. And their ranges are really different. Their distributions are really different. What is this? What is this shininess? Like what? Is it a data collection problem? Is it like it's impossible to like, you know, or is it like a definition? Like, do I just not understand the difference? Should I be taking the difference? Also things like people measure stuff like after six days, after 12 days, after a month, and then they view these as really separate measurements. But to me, they're just the same measurement, but over time. And like, you know, which way you should model it? Like, how do I cut the data? How do I model it? How many models do I need to bring together to actually give what they need? There's a lot of really cool challenges.
0: Are there any open materials about this subject? I don't know, I Courses, books, uh, whatever. Ooh. that People can just go and learn about this.
1: There must be. That's, I sh- you should... <laughs>
0: Oh, okay. I should ask. it. Do you know any, and can you recommend? No,
1: no. I mean, <laughs> I'm happy to go try to figure that. They answer to that question, and I wish. I wish I had gotten you an answer beforehand. Mm-hmm. I did put on this document. There's this machine learning repository which has the very realistic data set on sensors on, like it's from the semiconductor industry. You can go play with that. If you want to build yourself an anomaly detection model for whatever the processes that they're modeling, there was a Kaggle notebook associated to that.
0: UCI UCI.com data set, right?
1: Yeah, exactly that. So that's, that's a short answer, but there must be a book. I just don't know what it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We have uh, more questions, but I think we already answered some of them. Okay. And for the rest, like, uh, can you talk more about your decision to work in industry? It will probably require another episode, another interview. So maybe we can just wrap up. <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, we, we have to, uh, Why industry? You have time. I mean, we mean productive industry, not like... like I mean, there's sort of two questions, depending on mm-hmm. how you define industry. Do we mean just not academia? Or do we mean productive industry?
0: Well, I guess maybe both.
1: Okay, so not academia is... I like it all right here. <laughs> I've reached a point where the next academic position I could take would have been six months with a possible renewal for an extra six months, moving to another country, learning another language. So at that point, obviously, I need to do something not in academia. And then, I mean, why I started where I started is I asked everybody. I applied for everything. And I asked everybody, you know, do you know people who are in industry? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I know this guy. Oh, yeah. And I talked to him. And I mean, it's, it's over someone I knew.
0: It was just something attractive to you. Like you thought, okay, this is something I want to work with because it sounds way cooler than, I don't know, a, your usual e-commerce store.
1: Six years ago, it was just, I, I need a job. <laughs> Six years ago, uh-huh. it was, I need a job. <laughs> and then three years ago it was the way the project was pitched to me was, hey, we're effectively like this little research group in industry. And we have all these POCs and we wanna we want someone to help us try to figure out how to take them turn them into productive projects. And I thought that sounded really cool. It does. And that's what got me into it. And then I like the people. I think I have to say, I hang out with a lot of physicists in grad school. uh, If you're listening, hi. (laughs) And there's a lot of, yeah, physicists and chemists, just a different worldview, uh, the people that you end up interfacing with in data science and as, as well as like the people touching the data and generating the data. It's just a very different flavor of workplace. I mean, my previous employer, the people who worked on the shop floor were walking around in in these ridiculous shiny jumpsuits because it reduced the it's it, something that like the fabric reduces the static. But so you know, like people just wear whatever, right? Like people show up in hiking clothes, like it's just this very casual. It's much more about, you know, the work and the science. Yeah, the people. The people is the answer.
0: I also guess that it depends on where you are geographically yes. when it comes to Germany. For example, if you're in Berlin, there are not so many this kind of industry companies. Yeah. Right? So you're probably, you'll end up working for an company.
1: They must. There must. There's like a little bit.
0: A little bit, but like you need to be specifically looking a little further away. This,
1: yeah. Yeah. Like closer to Dresden or something. Yeah. There's a few down there. You have to get outside of like mm-hmm. Berlin itself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks uh, a lot. That was a really good discussion. I'm very hungry now after talking about peanuts and uh, cakes. (laughs) So (laughs) probably should go eat something. So yeah, thanks again and Thanks everyone for joining us today. Yeah, it was nice talking to you.
1: Yeah, likewise.
0: (laughs) See you soon. Ciao. Goodbye.